Thank you all so much uh, for that, Sharon, Napoleon, um, and thank you all for joining us. I'm going to hand it over to Cherie to introduce our first guest, and uh, we'll begin right now. Hi, can you hear me? This is Cherie Foylin coming to you from New Mexico, um, and it is a pleasure to introduce our first guest. I got to say, I've known Kinder for 10 years now, solid. Um, we've worked together in many occasions from D.C. to um, down in uh, down in uh, Plaquemines Parish. So we've been around for each other for quite a while. She's a shrimper. She's a fisherwoman. She's an amazing mother and wife um, and a public health advocate. I know one of the reasons I got into um, the whole BP perfuddle in the first place was because I listened to your beautiful voice uh, talking about your family and and um you said i remember you said that you i look at my five-year-old my eight-year-old and i think in 10 years i'm going to be looking at elena who just graduated by the way congrats and to say to her the reason you're in the hospital bed is because i kept you here that's what i'm here to ask and i really do appreciate that you remember that when you asked that question and can you tell us a little bit more like from from that 10 years ago when you said that to now uh, what has that been like, and um, were your fears true? I mean, did everything come true that you thought, that you worried about? You know, we've been really fortunate as far as our kids go. Um, Alina does have a medical condition now where uh, sometimes whenever she stands up to take off walking, her blood pressure bottoms out, and then she passes out. Uh, from my view, it appeared to be a seizure that she was having when she was having those episodes. So we brought her to all kinds of doctors, had major a number of her, and finally we landed with a pediatric neurologist that diagnosed her with something called syncope, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. 
and it's a condition that she'll deal with. She could outgrow what they say, or it could be something that she deals with for the rest of her life. We're not real sure exactly, um, but it, it is something that's manageable, um, and she's she's doing great. Other than that, uh, our son deals with a lot of allergy issues that he didn't have before. And then, of course, my husband deals with, you know, same thing he's been dealing with the last 10 years. And we just learned to live with it, you know, and that's just the reality of things. But when I say we're lucky, what I mean by that is, you know, we've had we've had teenagers that have passed away with cancer in our parish since the BPO spill. And a number of kids across the entire Gulf Coast that have been diagnosed with all these rare forms of cancer. And then there's a long, long list of adults that we've lost to cancer diagnosis and death since this bill, especially in the first five years. Sheree, it was crazy. It was like something I'd never experienced. And I don't ever want to experience it again. Sorry, I was muted. Um, yeah, I remember that we lost a good number of folks now. I'm thinking of Fritzy Presley and many other people that, that uh, aren't with us any longer. And I know Derek Evans talks about the many, many more graves in the in the Gulf since BP and Katrina that were that weren't there before. Um, how do you think that that prepared you a little bit for this all this stuff with COVID nineteen? I mean, has that hit your community hard at all? And if so, how do you how do you deal with that on top of the other issues? I was really scared when this outbreak started because uh, for a number of reasons, especially. Um, you know, so many people in our community deal with those pre-existing conditions that came up after the oil spill. So I was concerned, especially those that had been treated for cancer, you know, um, and like my, you know, Joelle makes six years that she's been in remission. And uh, we just have been super careful and limited our trips to West Bank of New Orleans because that's a big hot spot. And, um, you know, it just, it gave me some insight on exactly how, um, so, you know, those lessons I have carried with me that we learned during going after. Well, thank you so much for, can you hear me? Thank you so much for your time and for coming on today. And then we're going to have a few more questions a little bit later on, if you can hold on and, and hang out with us. But for now, I'm going to let Brian introduce the, the next person. Yeah. Thank you so much, Shree. And thank you, Kendra, for joining us. I know Many of the guests we have today are right in the middle of doing their work and um, running errands and things. So I appreciate you spending time with us. Our next guest, I, I really want to um, welcome. And I know that many of y'all uh, know each other, um, but Drew Landry is a, a good friend of mine and to many in the Gulf and uh, after BP. He spent uh, copious amounts of time talking and interviewing with cleanup workers, fishermen and women, and working families. And I know it took a toll on, uh, on him personally and, and so many others uh, emotionally and, uh, and mentally and spiritually. And I just want to ask you, Drew, you know, because we're in a, in a moment now where 40 million people are out of work again. Um, and, and this was something that really hit the Gulf hard because of BP. Um, if you can share a little bit about what, uh, what you learned having gone through that and any other things you'd like to express uh, related to the ongoing recovery efforts of the BP drilling disaster. Um, and, then, and then I hope you can share a song with us. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, you know, 
the thing about it is I think a lot of the first of all there have been some really good movies I know that uh, Mark Manning just put out a film at Sundance and Kendra was a huge part of it and she's a huge part of the whole deal and she's one of the voices just strong woman that stood up for her family you know and there's a lot of people like that um but i think you know just like being locked up for the last two months uh sorry y'all um it's that just waiting and uh another thing that really i think hurt the fishing families was the claims process they put an extra financial burden and they they starved people out and basically said you can take five thousand dollar a five thousand dollar quick pay and and not sue us in the long run and it, they saved a lot of money with that but um you know what they did was they, they never compensated people and then we got a lot of people that are you know after the 10-year anniversary they never even got their hospital bills paid and it was these are people that were fighting this bill, getting paid by BP through the vessels of opportunity. And uh, so there's just no culpability. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I think it's just different fights. I think we've all moved on to with our lives, you know, not good or bad, you know. But, uh, you know, um, I don't know, man. I guess every struggle is a different chapter for all of us, you know. I mean, you're down there trying to fight pollution and poverty and whatnot. And, um, you know, Kendra's still trying to stand up for commercial fishermen. Uh, I think you just, you just move from one fight to the next and whether justice is served, I think Cherie probably summed it up is that, you know, you thought if the world knew the truth about what was happening in the Gulf, then they would in turn do something about it. And I think we all realized it was just about liability, <laughs> you know, so, so anyway, I'll play a little song if y'all want to hear it. It's an old cover song, one of my favorites. Y'all hear that, I? Sounds great. sang the song we were written and you marched along to the beat of the drum but someday soon you're gonna wake up singing the battle is over but the, but the war goes on everybody play what if the leaders got all the guns? Remember when you jumped to the eight o'clock whistle? Yeah, yeah. Battle is over, all goes on. So close your eyes, hear the thunder. Crying the rain and smiling the sun. Who do you think that you fool, my brother? Battle is over, but the war goes on.
Thank you so much, Drew, and uh, I hope you can stay on and listen to the conversation um, and join us on the back end for uh, some Q&A. I did get some questions from uh, one of our viewers, um, Heidi, uh, and I'll share that with you too, but I'm going to pass it on now to Patty to introduce our, our, our next guest. Thank you so much, Drew. That was wonderful. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, such a pleasure to have um, everyone uh, here today, and especially those that are joining us Facebook Live. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time today. So I am here to introduce um, Gabriela Zavala, who is someone I actually know personally, and very happy to have her here. So I'm going to go ahead and just do a little intro for, for Gabby. And uh, she was born in Brownsville, Texas, um, working mostly in nonprofit organizations, even right after high school. So she worked with Planned Parenthood and she um, got a bachelor's degree in biology at UTV in Brownsville, Texas. She also returned to the nonprofit field with La Union del Pueblo Entero. The acronym is Lupe for, for those who might want to look it up as a community organizer. And she also was volunteering with humanitarian aid in 2018 with US-Mexican border when they were seeing high volumes of um, asylum seekers. And so with those experiences and seeing about all the types of needs that they were having, uh, Miss Gabby here was inspired to actually create her own grassroots movement to provide that kind of aid by becoming the founder and executive director of Resource Center Matamoros. And that is actually where Gabby lives, is in uh, Matamoros, Tamaulipas, Mexico. So it's actually right across from the refugee encampment. So Gabby is there. 24-7 uh, to help them with legal needs and social support services. And so, Gabby, thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Super, super glad you could be here uh, all the way to Mexico. So I'm glad our <laughs> service is still going. And uh, since it is hurricane season has started. But um, I really, uh, one of the questions we have here is, we wanted to see about the current situation right now at the border for asylum seekers as they're experiencing uh, with um, increased border criminalization, but also and uh, COVID. So some of those issues that y'all are facing, is there some something you could give us to let us know about what's going on on the ground? Sure, sure. Um, 
Thank you, Patty, so much for that wonderful introduction. Um, I'm such a fan of you and of everybody else here on the podcast, and it's such an honor uh, to be able to share information about the border um, situation with everybody today. Um, so yeah, in response to your question, I think um, the way that coronavirus has impacted the entire world is really apparent when it comes to the refugee camp situation. It's sort of like the impact that they have is almost tenfold. Um, so I'm just going to start off with a couple of ways that, um, for example, COVID um, has has affected uh, the refugee and the asylum seekers here in Matamoros, Tamaulipas. And so I think um, for the first, for the, for the for the most part, um, it's sort of there's this assumption, and I think this is common across the world that there's this assumption that everybody has coronavirus, right? And so we have to protect ourselves. That's why everybody wears masks and everybody sort of, you know, um, has a social distancing. When it comes to refugees, because they already face discrimination, I think that it's um, a lot more increased, this discrimination, this idea that, um, that the refugees have, because of their living conditions, that they will have more of a, uh, you know, uh, more of a, of a chance of having coronavirus. And so, um, so it's everybody's heightened right the, the heightened um everybody's heightening their awareness of coronavirus and they're just heightening also um the restrictions you know the things that they have to impose so that they can protect the local matamoros community um so for example um one of the biggest problems here in matamoros is that both of the governments and, and i talk about the u.s and the mexican government have zero investments on refugee um response um, contrary to what policy says and the agreements between Mexico and U.S. and Mexico is supposed to be really prepared for handling large amounts of refugees and through their asylum process, this is obviously a myth and there is zero investment in it. And so any of the aid and any of the help that they have here is coming from the U.S. organizations and the NGOs, what we call the non-governmental organizations. Um, so there's zero hospitals, there's zero preparedness, there's zero response for the refugees, specifically to COVID-19 from either side of the border. So um, it has forced the NGOs to, to create that response. Um, so for example, um, the medical teams in the camp, GRM, which is also our partner and our fiscal sponsor, um, it took them weeks and weeks to get approved um, to cross um, a makeshift uh, tent hospital that was specifically to respond for COVID-19 because what we see is that we can't take refugees that are potentially exposed to COVID, we can't take them to the local hospitals because they flat out deny and you know deny their service. Um, so it, it, it has taken working with or convincing or begging practically, you know, the US government, um, you know, the, the the customs and also the Mexican customs and the Mexican immigration to let us cross um, that hospital. It took almost a month where, you know, had they allowed us to, then we would have had a, a faster response. Um, to get people that are suspected, people here that are suspected with COVID, it takes them days up to weeks to be able to get them to a proper testing facility for a PCR test that will confirm their, their condition. During that time, people have to quarantine and they have to leave the camp to this sort of isolated area where they're you know, completely isolated from the camp. And so that's obviously in this situation where you're in a tent, 
you're isolated from your camp. I mean, you're already in a bad situation and now you can't be around your network of support that you've created, you know, in your little communities inside the tent, the tent city. I'm so, oh, I'm um, sorry about that, Gabby. So, um, yeah. really, um, you have on the camp, there are so many different things. It's almost, it's, it has, you said, um, as, as we've talked before, stores and all these different things and you mentioned some fencing issues and uh right. homelessness issues you know could you uh give us about a, a minute of some of the, that info sure 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 yeah um so i think um so a lot of this COVID has given the government a justification to be more punitive to asylum seekers so they've actually built um, a barbed wire fence around the entire refugee camp. So it looks like a compound um, and people are not able to come in and out. They're basically being screened for supposedly COVID, like they're being screened for temperature and for health checks. But at the same time, they basically start screening people for their legal documents here in Mexico. So for example, if they've applied for asylum in the US and they've been denied, they're no longer legal in Mexico. And so they, they get kicked out. So that creates homelessness. We as NGOs have advocated with the Mexican immigration to allow leniency and to allow people to apply for asylum in Mexico. So we're working with UNHCR and we're working with HIAS to get that process going. So that gives them an, ex an exemption to stay in the camp. But when you talk about like internally displaced persons, which are people from Mexico that are migrating to like apply for asylum in the US, they get denied they basically become homeless and they have, I mean, they're not going to go back to their area. A lot of them, you know, they speak dialect and they're just completely strange, strange place. Um, oh. So that, oh yeah. So that is creating some of that like homelessness here. We're working with the NGOs to try to find housing, to try to find work op opportunities. But in a COVID situation, that's nearly impossible because there's no jobs, right? People are losing their jobs rather oh. than, than find work. Right. So you all are facing tremendous amount of challenges left and right um and um obviously um something completely different or i won't say completely different but just uh, just having to face being in a barbed wire fence having to isolate right. in a tent and not even being able to leave the area that that's just i just want to thank you so much for putting all this work towards this this is a lot to take and you know we really the, the evidence the evidence of that of, of of the effects of that health wise i mean we're starting to see a lot of alcohol and drug use um it's rising it's increasing in a dramatic rate people are losing hope people are no longer um they don't have faith in the in the asylum process anymore so a lot of people are going back to their country going back to a potentially violent situation um, because they've lost hope. And so we're seeing, you know, this kind of transition from the beginning when we first started this program where people were hopeful, they were applying for asylum. COVID has basically stopped the entire immigration process. So people are already saying there's no chance. A lot of this has obviously increased the market for unconventional methods of crossing into the U.S. So a lot of people are paying coyotes and paying people to go cross, you know, and so where they had this legal way of, of, getting entry into the u.s now they're just going to you know they're resorting to the illegal ways right through the through undocumented processes right well so. that that sounds like like it's amazing how much information you have and i think there will be plenty of people that will have lots of questions and i think you have 
an incredible amount of information. And I think that a, a lot of what you're going through, um, we have an incredible guest that we have, they do have quite an uh, amount of experience, knowledge and wisdom when it comes to some of these um, situations. So um, we have Dr. Elika Dunham, uh, who is an infectious disease scientist who spent uh, earlier career at the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. So researching influenza transmission from animals to humans, I mean, just uh, dedicating uh, scientific research, hired under the Obama administration for global health security agenda, um, trying to strengthen countries with public health systems and responding to infectious disease and also just continuing the work in the global health security as a consultant with World Health Organization to work with National Action Plan for Global Health Security. And who um, is also working with various countries developing global health security uh, for preparedness and plans. And um, this is just incredible to have Dr. Dunham here to speak with technical expertise in how to build for disaster preparedness. And what I would like to do is ask uh, Dr. Dunham, one, thank you for being here, welcome. And also, um, what are some of your thoughts about the response with COVID like on our community level uh, responses or with minority communities? All right, thank I think you for having me. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Thank you. Um, I Thank have you. to say that, um, like many of you, I'm very, very concerned about the response on the national scale um, as far as like marginalized communities um, in, in the COVID-19 response phase. Um, the response <laughs> has been very poor um, and it, it working in global health security under the Obama administration, it didn't have to, it, it didn't have to, um, be that way because we worked really hard to establish the global health security agenda um, initiative that was basically um, dismantled when the trump administration came in and some of the things that we tackled were points of entry quarantine risk communications um, point of entry surveillance um, connecting um, health security to um, law security all these things were all these technical pillars were think thought about on how we would respond to a pandemic we knew um just because of the 1918 pandemic and the 2009 flu pandemic and the ebola um, epidemic that happened that infectious diseases will continue to be a threat so um you know when we're looking at how uh just on a national scale and the state scale and the city scale of what's going on uh you know we just was not prepared to deal with COVID-19 at all um I really feel um you know for for the work that I've done I've traditionally worked at the governmental sector a higher leadership level and one of the things that um we observed was that um it's not as satisfying and as sustainable as you may think because what essentially happens is when you go in and you build a national plan or a contingency plan with the country, 
uh, four years from, you know, where, when you did it, another administration comes in, another government um, leadership comes in, and they may not necessarily make preparedness and response their priority. And so that's essentially what happened with our country. Obama administration made it a national priority. The Trump administration did not. Um, so our response has been very poor. But with that being said, we have several examples where disasters have hit like the BP. We've had hurricane disasters. And if you really look at historically what's happened, the federal response to this has been poor. And so I would argue that we need to start thinking about community resilience, preparedness and response at the community level. Um, and the first and most important point of why I argue that is because when a disaster strikes, what usually happens is that the, uh, the response is localized, right? You feel it immediately and it's basically the neighbors and everyone pulling together to help each other because the response is lagged at the state and federal level. Um, and so uh, because of that, because the uh, response is going to be so localized and immediate, we need to start thinking about how we can organize logistically and operationalize some of these plans at the community level. Um, number two, marginalized co communities are usually not a priority during response. They're the last, uh, you know, to, to get help. Um, as you all know, Black people are disproportionately dying from COVID-19, and there's a, a lot of underlying co-factors to that. You know, whether it's diabetes or um, high blood pressure, you can't have that conversation without thinking about the food deserts and the healthcare that's available to Black people. And um, you also know that indigenous people are being hard hit. New Mexico has the highest rate with the Navajo Nation right now. And, um, you know, why is that? What are those cofactors? The resources are simply just not available to these marginalized communities. And so, you know, thinking about how we can build resilience and preparedness and response plans, not just for natural disasters, but infectious diseases, as well as accidental disasters is important. Um, to think about at the community level. And, you know, when we look at uh, the federal response to um, things like Katrina, um, Maria, I mean, that was absolutely horrendous what was going down in Puerto Rico, um, you know, and not supporting the leadership there. And we're seeing now with the COVID-19, instead of, you know, the uh, Global Health Security Initiative was built to bring states um, together as a court, you know, coordinating together to respond. Right now, what's going on is that the states are siloed. They're acting on their own, and that was not supposed to be. And if you're having risk communications, we didn't have a national unified voice on that. Um, states are saying whatever, the federal government is saying whatever, and there's been misinformation from the very beginning. And so what that creates is a lot of misinformation and rumors, and people do not want to comply, essentially. Um, so thinking about um, just the federal response and what that means. Now, I don't think that would be what it, every administration, I think we would have seen a very different response with Obama's administration, but um, who knows, I, I can't predict. I can say working on a global health security agenda, he was, uh, him and his uh, the administration were very aware of all the um, things that we needed to consider to respond adequately. So um, I'm gonna leave it at that. that I, I, I really am interested in thinking about um, how we can build these plans at the community level when disaster strikes. Um, but as I said, there's a lot of underlying cofactors, right? Um, a lot of inequities and um, that foundation needs to be fixed before we can develop any kind of plan at the community level. Dr. Dunham, thank you. Thank you um, so very much. It's just 
um, it's incredible to have you here. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you, Patty and everyone who's been on. Uh, this is really great. I want to introduce another um, good friend of mine, Lee Haynes, um, who I, I met through an organization called the People's Health Movement. Um, Lee Haynes was born and raised in Southeast Texas. Yeah. <laughs> she is a lawyer and public health professional. Her work and research falls at the intersection of health and human rights. In the U.S. and internationally, she advocates for the rights of, to health, focusing on social and structural determinants of health and inequities between communities. Her current research looks at social movements and how communities can organize at the local level to influence health policy. Lee is active with the People's Health Movement and is on the faculty of the MPH in Health Equity Program at Simmons University. Lee, thank you for joining us and would love to hear your thoughts uh, on the disparities and how you uh, have been working to end those. Um, yeah, so thanks for having me here. It's um, I live in Brussels, so this is, I haven't been in a room full of my people, especially <laughs> like from this part of the country in a long time. So it's really great to be here. Um, listening to everyone share their stories and experiences, um, I actually had new thoughts of things that I wanted to say, um, but I am thinking about, um, you know, just how we think about health, number one, and, um, you know, I have this background in human rights, and, and when I think about health, I think of health as a human right, and, um, and how we must address the social and structural determinants of health in order for everyone to achieve health, and this is the conditions in which people live, and working conditions, um, family conditions, people, um, you know, living in safe and healthy environments, and I think that everyone, um, um, everyone, true Kendra, um, shared experiences um, of their, you know, of conditions that led to that health that wasn't just I wasn't able to get to the doctor. And so thinking about um, disparities, but also disparities, health disparities, and then the similarities and the disparities that we see between BP 10 years ago and the COVID-19 pandemic now. So for example, um, one is the, so, you know, disaster hit and people were out of work. And, um, and as Drew said, they were only given um, $5,000 like income replacement. Yeah. And, you know, here we have a $1,200 stimulus check and workers are supposed to be able to live off that. I know there's, um, you know, the unemployment bonus now, but um, how long did it take for people to get unemployment? And also, um, thinking about, um, Brian, you mentioned earlier, PPE. There's um, still this PPE distribution problem. And, um, and also, companies, I hate to refer to hospitals as companies, but that's what it is. Well, um, companies, yeah, right? <laughs> companies not 
um, giving their workers what they need to be healthy. And, um, and the workers are necessary to protect communities. Um, and finally, um, another example that I could think of while people were talking, um, I guess a couple is, um, you know, just the actual um, exposure and health disparities. And so um, I actually had to do a little research before I, um, before we got together. And I was reading that after the um, BP oil spill, the cleanup and what happened with the waste is that um, most of the waste went to um, communities where there was poor communities and communities of color. And, um, and that was without any consideration. And this was like to landfills. And that was without any consideration of the long-term impacts of exposure to that sort of waste. And, um, and now, um, you know, COVID's only been around for a few months, but there's still this um, disproportionate or, um, you know, disparate, unjust impact on um, black and brown people, communities of color, um, you know, due to just the structural situation in the US, um, you know, historic um, discrimination, racism, racist policies and like housing. And so, um, you know, where communities of color live, um, it's more crowded. Usually, you know, there's a lot of pollution. Um, and also the the work, um, you know, in, you know, the essential jobs <laughs> um, are often, you know, black and brown people, which, you know, leads to this increased exposure. And finally, there's the, um, the mental health impacts. Um, and one thing that's interesting about um, BP is the mental health impacts um, because many people who were impacted by the oil spill had recently been impacted by Hurricane Katrina. And so there's this cumulative mental health impact on folks. And so um, people who are already struggling with PTSD, with anxiety, you know, due to, um, you know, instability in housing or income um, instability, we're hit with that again, um, especially with regard to income. And so, you know, and again, um, and I think now the COVID crisis has, you know, kind of ripped this veil off of so many things happening in the U.S. that um, it's been it's been hard and it's been sad. It's been depressing to see this happen, you know, to our community. Um, so. So I think that um, as we think about, you know, responding, rebuilding, that we have to, you know, think about these, you know, root causes, underlying factors. I know those are kind of like public health buzzwords, but, um, but we have to think about, you know, what is our social protection? Like, how can a whole community fall through the cracks? And, um, and one thing that I was reading, because um, I was doing all this research, <laughs> um, but so the, the EPA um, has environmental justice and taken into account um, disparities and also, um, you know, community voices in their plans. Um, and apparently, um, 
whenever the APA kind of released their report um, as to, you know, how the response is going to be um, around BP, the communities complained because they were like, we had no meaningful participation in this process. And in um, communities in Louisiana in particular were really upset because the Homa Nation was not even mentioned. And so it's like, how can you plan anything without input from the community? And so I think when it comes to, you know, achieving human rights, achieving the right to health for people, um, and also, you know, have really all have to, you know, be partners between community, between experts, between policymakers, between, um, you know, folks in government. So um, I don't know how much time I took, but I know we're running over time. So I'll stop there. No, I think that that's great. And uh, thank you. Um, we had a couple of technical difficulties at the beginning. So we're we were running behind and, and I want to make sure that you have everything uh, said that you want to say. Um, all of the guests have shared some really powerful insight, um, some personal experience with living through disaster and crisis and others who are experts in thinking about how to respond in a moment of crisis and disaster and a combination of, of both, right? Because I think all of us are living in a in a crisis scenario <laughs> regardless of where you are um and i want to thank you all for for putting you know your your work into this and and your your time and your dedication um whether this is you know something that you do professionally or something that uh, you had to do um to protect your your family and friends and community so uh, I did want to see if there was a question from our panelists to any of the other panelists. Um, and we have about five minutes, um, but we can go over if there's uh, a little bit, if there's you know a need um, to have a discussion. And if there aren't any questions, uh, I did have one that I think would be really nice um, to hear from Dr. Dunham. And uh, this was, you know, in your work um, throughout your career, can you can you point to some examples where there have been good responses to disaster, where things did work properly, and why is the U.S. you know the most resourced country in the history of the world so bad at it? Thank you for that question. Um, I do have an example. Um, I one of my favorite examples is um, when I was working with the World Health Organization and we were in um, Uganda. And um, so it's very hard to tell the difference between um, respiratory diseases such as influenza and rhinovirus. Um, and so when we're doing surveillance, unless you're testing for PCR, you just don't know. Um, they have similar symptoms. And so there's, uh, we have what we call sentinel sites at the small clinics and hospitals um, around um, Uganda. And um, what we did was um, we wanted to pick up, what we were finding was that there was a, there was a disproportionate number of individuals that were not being recognized as being sick with flu. And those were in the rural areas. And so what we did was we came up with a plan is um, within the community is to do a train the trainer 
um, program where the people from the city um, healthcare would go out to the rural areas and train the healthcare out there and made sure that they understood the case management definitions and case management process and the sampling process. And uh, we were able to develop additional sentinel sites in these rural areas that are hard to get to. Um, and on an annual basis, um, they get a refresher course where um, these community healthcare workers work with the, the major city hospitals to get their training on the latest stuff that's um, from the WHO guidelines. So things like that, I think, um, when you see it in action is really, it feels good to see because like I said, you know, the government can turn over, but the community persists. It's gonna do what it's gonna do. And the more that you empower them with um, tools and, and education and train to trainer programs or whatever, the more resilient the community becomes. Um, as far as like the poor response on the US, it really goes to show you that you can have all the money in the world and you're still not gonna be able to respond. Um, the number one thing about responding is you have to have a coordinating effort that everybody's on the same page. And um, what the Trump administration did is that they dissolved the, um, the National Security Council Directorate for Global Health Security and Bioterrorism. Um, bio and um, that was the coordinating body at the National Security Council for um, different agencies such as CDC, State Department, Department of Defense, all um, have a role to play in any kind of disaster response or um, recovery and even preparedness. But because the coordinating body knew that there would be so much leadership um, making decisions, they are, were the ultimate decision makers. But once that got dissolved, then the agencies started working siloed just like the states and um and then we got the the information from national security back in february that covid19 was essentially going to be a problem in the u.s um we did not do anything about it um we did not warn hospitals we did not deploy uh ppe from our medical stockpiles we did nothing and so um, it's just, you know, to be quite honest, I can talk about all the things that went wrong, but essentially that, you know, this is a reflection of poor leadership. Um, that's what it boils down to, poor leadership of an administration that simply just didn't care about um, people who are suffering from COVID-19. Wow. And uh, I do wanna offer some time um, from, from the front lines in Plaquemines Parish uh, to Kendra, having heard Dr. Dunham and Lee speak, um, I'm just wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on how the community has really stepped up. And I know you were a large part of that in Plaquemines Parish um, for each other. And, and if you can say a little bit about the importance of those social networks that have been created since the BP disaster, since Katrina, um, and, and how we all can continue to, to help support communities like the ones that you live in, um, that are pretty far out of sight <laughs> from most folks, you know, living in the cities. Sure. So, um, a couple things as I'm sitting here, listening, right? So we're, we're supposed to be in the greatest country in the world and nothing can be further from the truth. Um, we're supposed to have a contingency plan. I learned that term during the oil spill, the contingency plans, right? For everything, for every scenario that the greatest minds on earth could possibly come up with. 
yet here we are in 2020 and we find ourselves in a, in a circumstance that the contingency plan was ripped up when a new administration came in the door and everybody fell down on the job. Um, when is this going to become unacceptable? That's my question. Is today the day it's going to become unacceptable? You know, I think that we've got a lot going on in our country. Right now, our country's on fire, right? And I think that's it. There's a lot of distractions going on um, to pin each other against one another. And I think as a community, as a whole, not just here in Plaquemines Parish, but across our nation and across the globe, we've got to start seeing each other at some level of importance, right? And... Um, I think there's a lot of things that we need to do to empower people that are not in political positions that they really want the best thing for their communities. And, and I think that cross training and whatnot are really great ideas because a lot of what I run into in my own community is people are busy. Um, your everyday average mom and dad are busy. They're working, they're taking the kids to ball practice, school, whatever. They don't have time or maybe they don't have the ambition to really get involved. But I think it's about identifying people in these, in these hardest hit communities uh, globally that do have the ambition and the wherewithal and the time and, and showing or um, gathering some level of support for those individuals. Because like for me, for instance, I've been doing advocacy work now for the health of my community and our fishery and food security and all of these different you know, headline issues. Um, for 10 years now and I've done it out of my own pocket 99% of it I mean there's been a few organizations that have sent me places and helped me financially but all in all David and I are into the end of our rope so here I found myself at a crossroad and I have to make a hard decision um, and unfortunately I'm gonna have to stay, take a step back from that because see to some level so I have to say to myself where are my efforts most needed and where, where can I spend my money to get the best bang for my buck, so to speak. And that's why, I've, that's why I was part of the Cost of Silence, the film. That's why I, was, I am currently part of litigation, um, currently suing the EPA and the Trump administration for a rule change of chemical dispersants. You know, because these contingency plans as we move forward and we have them in place for all these different issues that we come up with, they have to be in place and they have to have the right laws in place and, and part of these contingency plans before the accident happens, before the outbreak happens, before the explosion happens. It's not if, it's when it happens again. Where are we gonna be at and how are we gonna be prepared? And until people wrap their mind around that, I think we're falling down on the job. So I don't know if that answers your question. I'm sorry, Brian. <laughs> no, that was beautifully done and a really good segue because I heard um, sort of a, a term that you referenced that kind of came up that I wanna ask, lead to expound on and that is the political economy right you were saying you have to decide how to engage your advocacy work because you are a working mom you uh, are not getting paid to do this and there is a concept of uh, the political economy um, and i also want to just ask uh, lee uh, if she has any final thoughts about how folks can walk away from this conversation today tonight um, feeling empowered uh, to be able to do something to better engage in the political process to address the social determinants of health, um, even knowing that they're super busy, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
yeah, thinking about political economy, it's important for all of us to realize, um, like Kendra said, that um, you know, on a small scale to a large scale, um, economics drives politics. Politicians make decisions based on money. And I know it's big, but if we are gonna see the change we wanna see, that's a change that needs to be made. Our policy should be driven by um, people and people being healthy and people being able to live full lives. And so I would encourage people to stay inspired um, because change does happen. I mean, it's, it's a big machine and change will be slow, but we have to keep turning those gears. And so I would say, um, you know, just be aware. Um, if you don't have time, you know, <laughs> you know, be aware and talk to people and educate people or, you know, educate yourselves, you know, among your community members and, you know, have these difficult discussions. And also, um, if you can, um, you know, there's, petitions, there are, um, you know, that of course there's elections, but we don't feel like those get us anywhere very often. But, um, but there are small things that we can do. And I think importantly, it is, um, you know, sharing these ideas, because I think the, you know, the con consciousness of our country um, is shifting. I might be optimistic, but I think it's time for us to <laughs> to really take advantage of that and um, and talk about you know these tough things um, because you know these are complicated issues. I heard Angela Davis say one time, but we are intelligent, smart, and strong enough to address them all together. Well, thank you all so much. And uh, I just want to extend my appreciation um, for all of you and the work that you do. And I hope that we can continue to collaborate together. Um, we've all met some new people today and each one of you are doing incredible work and in, in, uh, helping expose needs and provide support for people. Um, we're gonna be taken out by another song by Mr. Bolion Williams. And I just want to appreciate all the folks who uh, were our participants and guests today. Kendra, Gabby, Dr. Dunham, Lee, um, our special guest host, Sharif Oitland, who's been really big part of just sort of shaping the response and recovery work in, the, in Louisiana's Bayou country um and and drew for his work in music to um, live producers co-hosts Patti Rubio um Becca Hinojosa um, production support from Joisha Judith and Anne and Noel who's going to be mixing all of this um later into a um podcast um it'll be edited down so thank you all so much
Sing a song, oh my people. Sing. Sing of great African heroines who out of their wounds gave birth to great African dynasties that stretch out across the millennia like the waves of the desert sand. Sing a song. Sing a song. Yeah. 